The reading is taken from St. Mark. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter's at the point of death, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who'd been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She'd endured much under many physicians and spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She'd heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that the power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowds pressing in on you. How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. When he'd entered, he said to them, why do you make a commotion and weep? Child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up and immediately the girl got up and began to walk about she was 12 years of age at this they were overcome with amazement he strictly ordered them that no one should know this and he told them go and give her something to eat um the the, uh, the, the blue plaque that we had unveiled this week raised, I think, for us the very real question of the injustices that exist in our society relating to ethnicity, culture, skin colour, and some of the, the prejudices and evils surrounding racism that we live with. And it, it was salutary to hear Martin Luther King's voice from 62 years ago preaching on something that, you know, before, long before I was born was, was being raised here in this church as an issue and still, still it's nowhere near being resolved. Well, 
there are other divisions within humanity as well as ethnicity. And this morning, I want us to focus on, on, on a different one of those. I want us to focus for a few minutes on the issue of the injustices relating to gender. And uh, I'm focusing particularly on gender, but I, I think by extension into that, we may also want to read sexuality. The Me Too movement, uh, which still in my head feels recent, uh, it grew to prominence in 2017. So this is not just the other day. This was the awareness movement around the issue of sexual harassment and of the sexual abuse of women in the workplace. It came about in response to the news reports of sexual abuse by the American film producer Harvey Weinstein. And it has done much good in raising awareness, giving voice to survivors. It has led to sweeping cultural and workplace changes. This is all good and to be celebrated. But I'm afraid we're still a long way from a world where such behaviors have been banished to history. The lead article on the BBC overnight last night in the religious news section was relating to yet another scandal of sexual abuse by religious leaders in a Christian denomination. I can't believe this is likely to be the case, but Donald Trump may well be back to prominence as a presidential candidate in the United States. This is a man who is on record for saying that if a man has enough power, he can do what he wants with a woman groping and sexually assaulting her without consent. And as the stories have emerged, it is clear that such behavior is rife. And I think there is something deeply wrong with our society's construction of what it means to be male and female, which has normalized assault. The rise of incel culture with its horrific misogyny continues seemingly unabated, and the arrest last year of Andrew Tate has done little to stem the tide. And my concern is that changing the law or arresting the ringleaders on their own will not solve the problem. What is needed is a new construction or possibly deconstruction of masculinity. Offering men a better way of being themselves. I loved reading Grayson Perry's book, The Descent of Man, in which he critiques what he calls the department of masculinity which tells men what they must be like in order to be real men. I think that the Department of Masculinity probably had uh, an outpost in the all-boys grammar school that I attended back in the 1980s. If you're going to be a man, you've got to be like this. Grayson Perry says, On average, two women a week in England and Wales are killed by a violent partner or ex-partner. This constitutes nearly 40% of all female homicide victims. He goes on to add, violence is not something young men just learn in gangs or even in school. At a deep level, they learn it at home. Governments agonize over housing estates scarred by crime, football hooliganism, city centers blighted by alcohol-fueled violence. They put in schemes to lessen binge drinking or fund safe houses for ex-gang members, while all the time little boys learn that violence is a way of solving problems. 
Every time they are slapped, intimidated, or humiliated as a child, every time they see their father throwing his weight around, every time they succeed in getting what they want by force, they are learning to be violent. And what I noticed as I was reading through our passage for this morning from the lectionary, this wonderful series of nested stories in Mark's Gospel, is quite how touch-heavy these stories are. The woman is healed through touch. The crowd are pressing around Jesus and touching him. He takes the girl's hand to raise her from death. And as we shall discover, in the first century Jewish world, there were very strong laws about who could touch whom and when. And in the course of today's passage, Jesus breaks pretty much all of those rules. So as we spend time with these stories of two women and their encounters with Jesus, my invitation is for us to hold in our minds the tension between touch and law and masculinity. Jeffrey John observes that Jesus had a startlingly inclusive attitude to women throughout the Gospels, regularly acting in ways that equalized their power with men. This countercultural behavior was almost unheard of in the first century, where women were regarded as second or sometimes even third rate citizens. And so the story of the hemorrhaging woman, which sits as a kind of filler in the sandwich of the story of the raising of Jairus' daughter, takes us right to the heart of the issue of the purity legislation that dominated Jewish society in that period. What we've seen over the last few weeks as we've been working our way through the opening of Mark's Gospel is that Jesus keeps opposing purity rules. The rules declared some people clean and other people unclean. And Jesus has been consistently taking action to declare clean people who the purity legislation declared to be unclean. And so he has cast out an unclean spirit from a man in a synagogue. He's cast out a whole legion of unclean spirits from a man living in the unclean territory of the tombs. He's healed one man rendered unclean by his skin condition and another rendered unclean by his physical impairments. And in today's passage, Jesus stops healing men and starts healing women. And whilst I wouldn't want to make too much of this, I think there is something significant in the observation that if we are to address violence by men against women, our starting point might need to be with the men, because it is them who need to change. Having challenged his society's shortcomings in terms of its constructions of masculinity, with its coded divisions of in and out, where powerful male scribes get to write the rules and enforce them, while those who couldn't or didn't fit in were excluded and scapegoated, Jesus now turns in our passage today to the women who time after time, generation after generation, are required to bear the psychological and physical scars of dysfunctional masculinity. And so we meet the hemorrhaging woman. And we have to start speaking about one or two things that might make some of us at least feel a little awkward. 
It is interesting to observe that as a man, I find it socially uncomfortable to talk in public about female menstruation. Somewhere lurking deep inside me is the child who attended that all-boys grammar school and was told by other boys that girls were dirty, whilst also discovering that they were the object of my sexual desire. The Bible, by contrast, is not so reticent. And as we read it, we discover that we are, in fact, not so far in our world from the world of the first century and that our taboos around power and gender and the functioning of the human body are every bit as dysfunctional as those that were operative in the crowd around Jesus. In a first century Jewish context, menstruation was seen as God's curse on Eve, being based on a particular reading of Genesis 3.16. This meant that when a woman uh, on her period was deemed unclean by the Levitical law code, she had to isolate herself from society, not only for the time of the period itself, but also for an additional seven days afterwards. This meant that in ancient Jewish society, for roughly two weeks out of each month, women were excluded from public worship. They had to live with restricted engagement in normal social life because of the rules around proxy contamination, whereby if they touched something, such as a pot or a chair, then that thing was declared unclean and could make anyone else who touched it unclean too. And in this context, it is surely highly significant that the woman rendered unclean by an uncontrolled flow of menstrual blood should find her path to healing through touch something which had been denied her for 12 years. This woman had not been allowed to touch anyone or anything for 12 years. So what are we to make then of this strange idea that when the woman touched Jesus, he felt the power go out of him and into her in a way that brought about her healing Sure, but also her capacity to then start to re-engage with society as someone who was no longer unclean. I mean, this whole power-draining thing sounds a little bit sci-fi, doesn't it? I don't know if you've seen the Star Wars film The Rise of Skywalker, but there are a couple of examples in there where someone who is strong in the force transfers some of their life energy to someone else who is dying, healing their wounds and bringing them back from the point of death. It's a classic sci-fi trope. I could give many other examples. The person laying their hands on the sick or injured character always feels a sense of pain or dangerous weakness as they give their power up to save another. Well, is this what's going on here with this woman touching Jesus and the flow of healing going from him to her? Well, partly, probably yes it is. There's nothing new under the sun and this idea of a powerful healer who heals by touch and energy. That's as old as humanity. And there's something of that, I think, being written into the Jesus story here. But in the case of Jesus and the hemorrhaging woman, I think there's another layer of meaning that Mark offers for us, which we can unpack. Everything this woman has touched for the past 12 years has been rendered unclean, from people to pots and pans. And this has been the source for her of isolation and deep distress. And yet, when she reaches out to touch Jesus, 
the flow of uncleanness is stemmed, both in her body and in her interactions with another. For the first time in 12 years, the flow goes the other way. Rather than her touch making others unclean, the touch of another has made her clean. The taboo that has condemned this woman to life as an outcast is broken as she touches Jesus and discovers not legalistic exclusion, but relationship and welcome. Unless we think we're so far removed from this strange world of menstrual taboo and touch contamination, some of us are old enough to remember the great taboo that surrounded the early years of the AIDS epidemic. Myths abounded that you could be contaminated by touch, and others called AIDS God's curse on gay men. I've been watching The Crown on Netflix, and one of the scenes uh, recalls Princess Diana opening the first purpose-built HIV AIDS unit at the London Middlesex Hospital, which cared for patients infected with AIDS. And in front of the world's media, Princess Diana took the hand of a man suffering with the illness and did so without gloves, publicly challenging the notion that HIV AIDS was passed from person to person by touch. It's not an understatement to say that this single act of touching changed the public perception of those suffering with HIV AIDS. Taboos about touch are at the heart of today's Bible story. And we see it again, not, not just in the, the, the touch of the woman with the flow of blood, but also in the touch in the healing of Jairus' daughter. It's not without significance that we're told she's 12 years old. Not only does the length of her life match the period of the suffering of the hemorrhaging woman, further tying these two stories together. But it also meant that in Jewish society at that time, she was now of marriageable age. Yes, I know, times change, thank God. A 12-year-old was ready to be married in the first century. A rabbi like Jesus could have played innocently with a small child, and we have stories elsewhere of Jesus opening his arms to welcome the little children. But Jairus's daughter was already, according to the rules of first century society, a woman. And so for Jesus to take her hand was a huge breach of the rules that governed social interactions between men and women. But of course, her being a woman was nowhere near as problematic from a purity law perspective as the fact that she was dead. I mean, it might have been inappropriate for a rabbi to touch a woman, but it was absolutely forbidden for a rabbi to touch a dead body. This was far worse than any physical contact with the hemorrhaging woman. And it takes us into one of the deep underlying themes of the Gospel of Mark, which is that Jesus consistently acts in ways that explode taboos. From breaking prohibitions on touch, to casting out spirits of uncleanness, to disregarding Sabbath laws, to defeating the great taboo of death itself. There is, it seems, nowhere that Jesus won't go in his mission to bring to people 
who are enslaved and diminished by narratives of exclusion and uncleanness the good news that they are no longer excluded, they are no longer unclean. The ultimate demonstration of Jesus' challenge to the great taboo of death comes, of course, at the end of the gospel in the story of the cross and the empty tomb, and we'll get to that as we get nearer Easter. But here, much earlier in the story, we're shown that Jesus is willing to break all the rules if the end result is the gift of life for another human being. And of course, Jairus' daughter, as with Lazarus in John's Gospel, is, is raised to life rather than resurrected to eternal life. One day both of them will die again, and their experience of life eternal will be the same quality as that experienced by any of us. The point here is not so much that the girl is raised from the dead, as it is that Jesus brings life and healing and wholeness by willfully going and doing what no other rabbi would or could. He touches a dead woman. And it's worth thinking for a moment here about the role of faith in these two healings. As Jesus sends the woman with the flow of blood away in peace, he tells her that it is her faith that has made her well. And Jesus says to Jairus, when the news comes that his daughter has died, that he should not fear, rather he should only have faith. It's the same word. And so, are we back in this world of magical healing? Is there some mechanistic relationship between a person of power and a person of faith unlocking physical healing? I mean, I remember hearing stuff when I was growing up, you know, Jesus wants to heal you if you only have enough faith, and if you're not healed, it's because you've not had enough faith. Have you ever heard that kind of nonsense? He says, naming it for what it is, it's nonsense. You cannot blame people for not being healed. But what is the role of faith here? What's going on? Well, as I said earlier, partly... Mark's Gospel is written in a world of ancient stories of miraculous power. And we are getting some echoes of these in the way the stories of Jesus are told by the Gospel writers. So it's only a chapter later, in chapter 6, that we hear of the crowd around Jesus being healed by the, touching the hem of his cloak. In the book of Acts, we get weird stories such as Peter's shadow falling on people and healing them, or Paul's handkerchiefs and aprons being circulated and healing people. So we are right to be slightly suspicious of such stories as they circulated around the stories of Jesus and filtered their way into the gospel writer's recordings of his ministry. But does this mean we can dismiss them entirely? I don't think we can. After all, Mark tells these stories this way for a reason. His intent is far more significant than simply wanting to assert that Jesus can do healing magic as well as any other faith healer. Geoffrey John again points to the fact that in classical Greek, the word heal is the same word that is used for the word save. So when Jesus says, to the hemorrhaging woman that her faith has healed her, he is also saying to her that her faith has saved her. For her, salvation and healing are the same thing, and the key to both is faith. It's surely significant that Jesus calls her daughter rather than woman. 
She is no longer a stranger to him. She is now part of his new family of faith. And here we are back at the taboos of faith that Jesus is overturning. See, this isn't a story to show that healing is triggered by faith if only you have enough of it. Rather, this story is told to demonstrate that the faith which Jesus draws from people is a faith that breaks down all the barriers of exclusion to include the unclean and declare them clean, thereby bringing the healing of salvation to those who had previously been denied it. The hemorrhaging woman is the one person in the whole crowd around Jesus who in faith is able to access his true power. It's only when the victim of 12 years exclusion is able to see Jesus with the eyes of faith that healing comes about. It is the ritual and economic outcast from society who has the faith to step into the new way of being human that Jesus is embodying and inaugurating, where there are no constraints on compassion and the excluded are welcomed as part of his family. And for her, stepping out of the crowd was an act of faith, defying the conspiracy of convention that would have kept her forever the perpetually silenced victim. For her, this was the step of faith. And it is matched by those of any generation, including our own, who take a step forward to hold their world to account for its victimization of them and their kind. And what she encounters in Jesus is a different kind of masculinity to the toxic hatred of the purity religionists. Those who would perpetuate the abusive system and then blame her for its existence are challenged when Jesus meets her faith and her courage with a healing of her body and her soul. What she discovered was that the step out of the conspiracy of violence was the step of healing. As one commentator puts it, inside the conspiracy of masculine violence, the woman is constantly covered in blood, but she leaves it and then the bleeding stops. And here's the thing. The new humanity that is coming into being in Christ is the place where the bleeding stops. Faith in Jesus is a step away from a world dominated by violence and scapegoating and bloodshed and oppression and discrimination and separation and toxic masculinity. Or at least it should be. It should be a step into a new world that is coming into being in our midst, friends. This is where it begins, a world where the death-defeating, resurrecting, inclusive, peaceful love of God for all people brings healing and salvation. This is the vision of the Christian gospel, where all are declared unclean, regardless of your skin color, of your gender, of your sexuality, regardless of who you are. And whatever damage has been done to you before, this should be the place where the healing begins because this is the place where we reach out and we touch Jesus and we find that the flow 
goes the other way. It is a matter of great shame that Christian congregations have become bastions of exclusion and segregation from the denial of the ordination of women and those who are LGBTQI to the scriptural justification of gender stereotypes that distort men and oppress women to the collusion with society and the scapegoating of others on the grounds of socioeconomic standing, ethnicity, or other innate characteristics. I cannot believe, except I can, that Christians get so colluded in all of this. The current hostility towards those who are transgender, both in society and in church life, is a particularly invidious manifestation of this trend. And echoing the message of the Me Too movement, friends, this has to stop. Congregations like Bloomsbury are, or at least should be, on the front line of bringing this new world into being through our courageous enacting of the faith that highlights oppression and brings salvation and healing to each of us, whoever we are. Because, you know, I need this. And you need it. Because each of us, in our own way, carry within ourselves both the legacy of and the capacity for oppression. Each of us needs to take the step of faith and reach out and touch Jesus to challenge the taboos that keep us from wholeness and to receive in our bodies the healing, loving, renewing, refreshing power that flows from our Savior to our souls. We need Jesus to reach out and take our hand and raise us to life. Our church vision statement sets out our purpose as being that of provoking faith in the heart of London. And if we are to fulfill this vision, we will need to step into the faith that brings healing to us and to others. We will need to discover in ourselves and in our community what it is to be healed, brought to new life, forgiven, included, loved. This is why we are here. This is what we stand for. This is who we are before our Savior Jesus Christ who sends his spirit into the depths of our souls to touch us where we hurt the most, to bring us healing and love and forgiveness and new life. Friends, reach out and touch Jesus and receive the healing that he gives. We remember in our prayers today the International Holocaust Remembrance Day that was observed around the world yesterday. Lord God, as we come before you now, we pause and we remember the Holocaust, that terrible murder of millions of Jews in our own continent, in the lifetime of some people here. We do not wish to remember such awful things. We do not want to think of, think of the piled up bodies of women, children and men 
murdered because of their ancestry. We feel a deep discomfort when survivors talk of the horrors they suffered, when they speak of their loss of their whole families. We remember that so many people stood by and did nothing. They shut their ears and eyes against the cries of the oppressed. They did not want to know what was happening. Lord God, we remember these things because we recognize the ability of humanity to commit great evil. We remember these things because we wish to warn ourselves to reign in evil, to stand up and oppose it, and even to, to calm the evil inclinations, the warlike inclinations and the selfish inclinations of our own hearts. People today still call out for the destruction of the Jewish people, People have even done so on the streets of our own city in recent weeks. Help each one of us to be bold to confront such evil. Help us all to seek peace, to stand on the side of the oppressed, to work for the good of all. Even as we see the terrible events of the war between Israel and Hamas, let each one of us speak and work for peace. Help us to condemn evil acts wherever they happen and help us all to mind our words, lest words that are meant for peace become weapons for evil causes. We pray for all in power. We pray for the Prime Minister and his government for our members of parliament, for our local councillors and authorities, whether they exercise the power to wage war on our behalf, the power to debate and create laws, or the power to build local communities, may each and all exercise their power for the greater good of all. May they seek by their deeds, by their legislation and by their words to build a society where the value of all is recognised, where all people can live in liberty and in peace. May the voices of those who seek division, who seek to scapegoat others and who seek strife and war be drowned out with voices calling for fraternity, harmony and peace. But even as we acknowledge the great evil that humans can do, we yet remember that all of us are made in the image of God. Each one of us bears your likeness. All can be capable of great love great courage, great sacrifice. The story of the Holocaust contains stories of such love, courage and sacrifice. Some responded to evil with such acts. Help each one of us to see 
and nurture the potential for good in all people, even those we regard as our enemies. Help each one of us to see the capacity for good in our own selves, in our own hearts. The journey to a peaceful world starts with each one of us. Help us in our daily lives to be kind and peace-loving to avoid argument and strife, to put away selfish ambition. May we all follow the example of Jesus Christ. May we put others first, loving our neighbour at all times. Help us to show Jesus to those around us, not just by professing faith, but by emulating him in all that we do. Stir us up today and in the coming days to love and good works. All glory be to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. May the God who gives us peace make us holy in every way and keep our whole being, spirit, soul and body free from every fault at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.